Thank you for listening to the Lucy Baptist Church podcast. To learn more about us or to find other sermons and resources from us, visit our website at lucybaptist.com. of God's Word, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Today we'll be considering chapter 3, verse 18, and we'll continue to the end of the chapter. So chapter 3, verse 18, all the way to verse 23. <clears throat> this morning I'll bring a sermon entitled, Gospel-Shaped Commands. This is God's Word. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God's. This is God's word. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, this week has been tumultuous. Um, we've been, as Pastor David has said, on again and then off and then on. Lord, we thank you so much for the good reports that we've heard about people testing negative for COVID-19. And Lord, we thank you that you've brought us to this morning. Whether uh, people are here, or they're watching on the live stream, or they're listening on the phone. Father, we thank you for your kindness that you allow us to meet together during these odd times. But Lord, just as we sang You have the words of eternal life. And so, Father, we look to you this morning. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us today. Lord, you would meet with us. And, Lord, as we look at your word, and, Father, we examine what Paul is saying to these Corinthians, Lord, help us to realize and understand that you're talking to us today. And, Lord, that these commands are applicable to the Corinthians, but they're applicable to us Lord, help us to see in your word what you would have us to do here at Lucy Baptist. And Lord, we pray that during this time, as we look at your word, Lord, that you would take your word, hide it within our heart, Lord, and you'd begin to conform us more and more into the image of your son, or that you may receive all glory and honor and praise. So Father, I pray you would meet with us this morning. We pray this in your son's wonderful name. Amen. Amen. Well, before we look into this text, I have been thinking about um, a particular story in Scripture this entire week. And it, in some way, has similar themes with our text today. The story is a good one, or at least it's one of my favorites. It's the story of Moses. He begins particularly, um, he, has, he, leaves, he lives a long life, but the, the story I've been thinking about is where he meets God at the burning bush and then gets orders to go to the Pharaoh and to begin to speak on God's behalf, to declare to Pharaoh what God expects of him and what God expects him to do. So you may recall the story. Moses is called out by God to go before Pharaoh and to declare to what God says to him. Namely, if you could sum it up in one little sentence, 
let my people go. And Moses begins to do that. And God declares to uh, Pharaoh through Moses, if Pharaoh refuses, which he does several times, God promises to strike the land with various plagues. And so one theme throughout that story that you may not catch on your first reading is that there is a, uh, a battle going on between God's wisdom and man's foolishness. At the beginning of the plagues, Pharaoh's magicians are able to replicate what God does. You see, the magicians, when God strikes the Nile and turns it into blood, fishes die, or fish die rather, that's the plural, then the magicians come on and they are able to do the same thing. And then the next plague we see, there's a swarm of frogs and the magicians are able to do that as well. But starting with the third plague, with swarms of gnats, the Bible says the magicians, with their secret arts, they they couldn't replicate what God had done. And from that point on, God continues to show his wonders and begins to declare time and time again, I am Lord. But Pharaoh, with a hard heart and a, uh, uh, a stubborn mind, he, he refused to see that his own wisdom and sovereignty throughout Egypt is woefully inferior to God's kingship. And so I'm sure you know the rest of the story. Pharaoh never recognizes God's kingliness. And in the end, it cost him his life and the lives of many other Egyptians. And eventually, God's people are rescued by God's hand. But God is very clear about his intentions in saving his people from the hands of the Egyptians. In excuse me, Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Do you catch it? God says his very purpose for striking Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that his name might be known among the entire earth. The very purpose of God saving his people is to declare to the whole world that God is sovereign and that every other ruler is beneath him. And in so doing, God declares that his wisdom and his might is far greater than any earthly ruler. This is a theme that we can trace throughout Scripture. It happens again and again and again. When man's wisdom rises up to rival God's wisdom, God is always shown to be wiser, greater, stronger, and in our text, we'll see even kinder. In our text this morning, we see the same thing. God declares that he is greater, wiser, and even kinder than any other leader. But before we continue our text, I do want to remind us of what we've seen so far. Remember, Paul is writing a letter and addressing certain issues that's happening at the Corinthian church. He's been making a very long argument. And so from the very beginning of the letter, even up until this point, he's been saying the same things and contributing to the same argument. So the, he starts addressing them in chapter 1, verse 10, if you'll remember, that there are divisions happening. The, the Corinthians are divided, and there's jealousy within these factions. 
And so he's made the argument so far that division is wrong because, first, the grounds of ministry is not a person, Paul or Paulus or Cephas, but is the gospel. He, he takes great pains from verse 10 all the way to the end of the chapter 1 to make that point. But then he also transitions and says the substance of the gospel is not centered on one person, or it is centered on one person. That is Christ crucified. It doesn't matter about Paul or Apollos. It's all about Christ. The gospel then is celebrated as a demonstration of God's power and received by those who are mature, those who are taught by the Spirit. So it's not dependent upon Paul or Apollos, but rather it's God working through his servants and it's received by uh, mature men, women, boys, and girls through God's Spirit's power. And finally, God's people are being built up by God's power. We see that in chapter 3. And then last week, we, we recognize that we are God's field, God's building. We are even God's temple. And so disbelieving any one of these truths will result in division. If you disbelieve that the grounds of ministry is about the gospel, well, division will be at your door. Every minister will be jockeying for a better and greater position of worldly importance. Disbelieve that the substance of the gospel is Christ crucified, then the church will be ripped apart by various heresies as factions start defining the core beliefs of Christianity. That's what's happening at the Corinthian church. Disbelieve that the gospel is a demonstration of God's power and communicated by the Spirit of God, then the church will be begging for new leaders to rise up and, again, change the message of the, very, of, of the gospel. Disbelieve that God is building up his people, then ministers will do everything in their own strength and in their own wisdom to replicate what only God can do. So Paul correctly sees the problems at Corinth and is like a skilled construction worker destroying those arguments little by little. He tears down those arguments brick by brick and he begins rebuilding the church at Corinth for a lifetime of God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, spirit-enabled ministry. And so in our text today, Paul continues to push his argument against division, and he also, it serves as a partial conclusion. His argument really will end at the end of chapter 4, so we have a little bit more to kind of hear his thought, but this text today is like a, a partial conclusion. So he'll conclude his arguments then, but for now he offers up three gospel-shaped commands that will build up and sustain healthy spiritual growth among the people of God at Corinth. And so they're very clear. The text breaks out really easily. Three commands. So in a handful of sentences, the main theme of this passage is, don't be self-deceived. God is way smarter than you. So don't boast in people, but boast in Christ, who gives you all things for your salvation and growth. And it is my desire this morning that we at Lucy would take this text to heart and joyfully obey these three simple commands, knowing that they serve for our good and for God's glory. And so with that, let's dive into our text and look at the very first gospel-shaped command. So point number one is let's not be self-deceived, for the gospel brings clarity. We see it right in our text. So verse 18, let no one deceive himself. That first command is very straightforward. Paul has been talking about wisdom and foolishness since chapter 1. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul has criticized the Corinthians as being infants in Christ. 
From the very start, the Corinthians have been deceiving themselves. And Paul is commanding them to turn in about face and by stopping the self-deception and never continuing in it. He's asking them, correct it. Stop being self-deceived and go on walking in the truth. The word that Paul uses indicates that the Corinthians were believing false ideas and therefore being self-deceived. And that's a theme we can t- trace through Scripture. Um, but before, before we trace that theme through Scripture, I, I do want to... Uh, um, it reminded me as I was studying this particular aspect of deception of a common experience I had growing up. You see, growing up, I loved catching crawdads in the creek. And I learned early on there's an excellent way to catch crawdads. What you do is you take a milk jug, clean it out, and then you take off the top and you submerge the milk jug into the creek and you put it right behind a crawdad. And then all you have to do is spook them. You see, crawdads, when they run away, they run away to hide. And milk jugs seem like a good hiding spot. But with deception, I know that it wasn't. So automatically, every time, go right into that milk jug, you pull them up, dump out the water, and then, you know, play with them, eat them, whatever. So... uh, (laughs) So the point is, that trick is built upon self-deception. The crawdad is deceived. And so there's something similar going on here. That's what Paul's getting at. He's saying that, Corinthians, you're believing in a lie. You've deceived yourself. And so we see that theme throughout Paul's writings. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes that, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, he's he's arguing a particular passage there, but he brings up Adam and Eve, and he makes the comment that in Genesis 3, they were deceived. It's the same word we see here. And so Paul, using that scene from Genesis 3, writes that Eve was deceived. We can recall in Genesis 3 that Eve was deceived by none other than the father of lies, Satan himself. But not only Satan can deceive people, but false leaders as well. Paul warns the church at Rome to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That's Romans 16, 17, and 18. But unfortunately, the Corinthians... We're not deceived by Satan necessarily or false teachers, although those may have contributed. Here, Paul says, you're self-deceived. But how have they been deceived so far? Well, our text gives us clues. What we've studied so far um, helps us to see. There's two major places where their deception has been causing trouble. In chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, again, we see that the church is divided and there's jealousy The lie that they believed was that Paul's ministry could be reduced to baptisms and who you followed, right? But the truth, as we have seen, is Paul came to preach the gospel, a gospel that declares a crucified Christ. He did so not by his strength and rhetoric, but by God's power and his wisdom. But the second place we see trouble was at the beginning of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 3, we see that there is jealousy and strife. The 
lie the Corinthians have bought into is they think that God's purpose for the church is to have these elite Christians that we can have massive followings and they can have massive prominence in the church. But the truth is that Paul and Apollos are servants sent by God for their benefit and growth in Christ. Not for fame and prominence. They were sent as workers, but God gives the growth. The church is not built on the name of Paul, but on the name of Jesus. Indeed, we are God's temple. That's the truth. And so Paul, throughout this letter, has been attacking the lies that the Corinthians have bought into. They are self-deceived. In our text, Paul is telling them to stop it. Stop being self-deceived. Listen to the gospel and continue on in the truth. This is one example of why the gospel is not just the entrance into salvation, but it's also the very road that we walk. Proverbs 3, 5 says, y'all know it well, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. There is freedom to be found in distrusting our, distrusting our own opinions and thoughts about God's purposes and plans. That freedom leads to a deeper trust of God and his word. Dear friends, we do not have to rely on our own understanding. Instead, we can lean into what God is doing in our lives understanding and believing the surety of his word and the promises of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Whatever happens in this world, whatever happens at Lucy Baptist, we can trust God. He's a professional. He's got this. So the first gospel-shaped command is that we are not to be self-deceived. Instead, we trust the gospel because it brings clarity. Let's look at the second gospel command. So the second thing we see is, let's become fools. For God's wisdom is greater than our own. And we see that in verses 18 through 20. And so you see, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. So that's the the next command that we see. So so Paul begins by using a conditional statement. So his command is for a particular group of people. He says it's for those among you who think that they are wise in this age. So since the first command was a warning against self-deception, it seems that many of the Corinthians consider themselves to be wise in this age. But is it wrong to be wise? Well, obviously not. That's not Paul's point. So before you throw out any books you may own, notice that Paul has a qualifier with the word wise. It's not just any wisdom. He's aiming at a particular wisdom. He's concerned about those who are wise in this age, which is odd phrasing. But this phrase has been mentioned a handful of times before in his letter. So in chapter 1, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14 to say that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And then he goes on to ask in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Notice, the debater of this age. Well, what does the debater debate? Well, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So we begin to see a little bit of how Paul is using this phrase. He mentions it again in chapter 2, verse 6, saying that he imparts wisdom among the mature, but that that wisdom is not a wisdom of the age. 
So what Paul has his sight on is not a wisdom that builds airplanes or performs surgeries or designs structurally sound buildings. Rather, he has a laser focus on the type of wisdom that is in rebellion against God's wisdom. It is a wisdom that subverts God's plan for his people and divides everyone into smaller and smaller factions. It is wisdom that puts baptisms and elegant rhetoric as more important than the gospel. It is a wisdom that thinks a bloodied, crucified Christ is foolish. And this is what he's been arguing. Charles Hodge writes in his commentary that, quote, Every, even truth or true knowledge becomes folly if employed to accomplish an end for which it is not adopted. If a man attempts to make men holy or happy, if he undertakes to convert the world by mathematics or metaphysics or moral philosophy, he is foolish. And his wisdom as a means to that end is folly. He must renounce all dependence on these means if he would accomplish that end. How true is that? When it comes to evangelism or church membership or worship or giving or anything else related to church life, it is often tempting to believe our own opinions and thoughts before searching out God's word and finding his wisdom. We must realize that God's wisdom is greater than our own. And if we want to see God bring about glorifying means here at Lucy, then we have to trust his word. And we have to trust his wisdom. Because God does things that we cannot do. And if we want to see him work, then we have to trust him. So if anyone is wise in this way, if you think you got it figured out and you can replicate what God is doing, Paul's looking at you and he says, stop. <laughs> Become a fool. So, so what does that mean? We have to take that as well. So just like Paul has a sight set on a particular wisdom, namely a wisdom that rebels against God's wisdom, he also has his sight set on a particular type of foolishness. So remember again in chapter 1, Paul defines these terms for us. He writes in verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And you can read on to the end of chapter 1, but he continues to defy what he means by foolishness or what he means by folly. Paul is saying that we are to be a fool in this age. Just as the Corinthians were considered wise according to worldly standards, Paul is commanding them now to become a fool by those same standards. And by doing so, they actually become wise. That is, by God's standards. Sound confusing? Well, look at the next verse. So verse 19 says that, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. That's the key. Paul's command to become a fool is for the very purpose of becoming wise in God's sight. You see, what God deems wise, this world looks at as foolishness. So Paul continues to press this case by citing two Old Testament passages. The first one he cites from is Job 5. 13, which says this, he catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. So in this text, in Job, Job's friend Eliphaz is talking to Job about the superiority of God's wisdom versus the wisdom of man. And although you read Job, Job's friends are misguided in their final analysis of Job's suffering, here 
Eliphaz is speaking in general truth about God. God actively frustrates the plans of the wise. Remember the story about Pharaoh? Actively frustrating his plans. Crafty, cunning men may be able to deceive you, but they cannot deceive God. So to further prove his point, Paul, in our text now, he he also cites Psalm 94, verse 11, which says this, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Now in this text, the psalmist is crying out to God that he would overthrow wicked oppressors and vindicate the righteous. The plans of wicked leadership are overthrown because their best thinkers, they can't outthink God. He knows their thoughts. He knows that they're futile and they will not last. Now in our text, there's something interesting going on. Um, and so bear with me. It may sound a little confusing, but I'm going to explain it. I'm going to try to explain it well. So in our text, Paul does something a little unique. He quotes the Greek translation of the Old Testament exactly, except where the Greek translation says man, Paul says the wise. Okay? That's interesting. Now, before you think Paul is changing scripture, he isn't doing that at all. So let me explain. It may be helpful to flip to Psalm 94. You can do that now or you can do that later. But in the context of Psalm 94, the subjects in verse 11, which Paul is quoting, is named in verse 8. In verse 8, which says this, Understand, O dullest of of the people, fools, when will you be wise? So those that the Lord knows their thoughts are to be futile are fools, according to verse 8 in, in Psalm 94. So Paul is seizing an opportunity and ironically labels them as wise in 1 Corinthians 3. It fits with everything he's been saying. It does no harm to Psalm 94. Paul knows who's being talked about in Psalm 94. But Paul's been arguing with these Corinthians, hey, you're wise according to worldly standards, but God looks at your wisdom and declares you to be fools. And so you better know this, that the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise and that they are futile. So Paul is telling the Corinthians who view themselves to be wise that God's not impressed with their so-called wisdom. And he makes that known. You see, God's wisdom is greater than our own. This is the paradoxical understanding of salvation, even the Christian life. We do not get saved by our own wisdom, nor do we continue in the Christian life by our own wisdom. Rather, we are saved and sustained by God's wisdom. Therefore, let us here at Lucy resolve to become fools according to worldly standards so that we may stand as wise in God's sight. So now let's look at our final gospel-shaped command. We see that in verses 21 through 23. So our third gospel command is let's not boast in men for you belong to Christ. And we see right right there in verse 21, so let no one boast in men. And so as we've seen in chapter 1, but also when we've looked at Romans 5, 1 through 5, a couple of months ago, this idea of boasting is popular with Paul. There's a correct way to boast, and then there's an incorrect way to boast. We see throughout Paul's writings, the correct way to boast is to boast in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we see that at the very end of the chapter. 
let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And in Galatians 6, 4, Paul writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So see, not only are we to boast in God, but we are also to boast in what God has done. Namely, what Christ has done. Is there any room for boasting of men? No, there's no room. And Paul makes that clear. In, in uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, which probably is what was in Paul's mind as he's writing some of this, it sums it up really well. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Boasting in anything other than what, who God is or what he has done is totally antithetical to Christian living. You cannot claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, yet boast in your own wisdom and might. Again, Paul is talking about a type of wisdom that we should not boast in. If someone at Lucy learns something new or goes to college or graduates with honors, I'm going to be thrilled and very proud for you. That's good wisdom, and that's something to get excited about. But... Paul is after a boasting that rebels against God. It's a boasting that depends upon your own strength to work out salvation. It's a boasting that doesn't rely on Christ, but rather one that relies on maybe your grandmother's prayers or the fact that you grew up in a Christian home or maybe your baptism. It's a boasting that renders the cross meaningless. The beauty and simplicity of the gospel is that people from all over the world, across many different backgrounds, find their one true hope and salvation in what Christ has done at the cross. All of God's people for all of time boast in the same thing, Christ. That is, we must be, uh, that's what we must be about here at Lucy. Let it be that for generations and generations, we do not boast about what we've accomplished, but rather what Christ has accomplished. And in such an uncertain time, we must be certain about what the gospel is and what we boast in, right? And we must declare that to a world. So, Paul tells the Corinthians to not boast in men. But why? Why is that not the case? Or why is that the case? Well, the next clause gives us the answer. He says, for all things are yours. Well, how so? How does this fit into Paul's argument? Well, Paul qualifies that phrase with the rest of the verse. He goes on to say, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. If we connect this phrase to the rest of what Paul has been saying to us, then we start to get the idea, Paul is telling these Corinthians as well as us today, that we are cheating ourselves if we don't recognize all the ways God is blessing us and growing us toward Christ's likeness. The Corinthian church was divided by people that would either pick Paul or pick Apollos or pick Cephas, not realizing that they could pick them all. That's the deception that's going on, and that's the cheating. He's saying, 
Why pick one when you can have them all? You can learn from them all. Charles Hodge, again, is is helpful at this point. He writes, The Corinthians did glory in man when they said, I am of Paul, I of Apollos, and I of Cephas. They forgot their own dignity when they regarded as masters those who were their servants. Is that not true? Paul, Apollos, and Cephas were at the Corinthian church to serve them, not to lord over them. And it's as if Paul is telling the Corinthians, you think too lowly of yourselves. You're worth so much more. You belong to Christ. We're here to serve you, not to lord over you, not to have a fan club. Indeed, child of God, you belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, all things... All teachers, all things in this world, even life and death, things in this moment or in the future that we have no idea what's going to happen, all these things serve God's great and glorious designs for your good and for his glory. That's what Paul's saying. Romans 8 offers up some parallel ideas. In verses 31 and 32 of Romans 8, Paul writes this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not also with him graciously graciously give us all things? Amen. If God has given us his son, how will we not go ahead and give us all things necessary for our salvation, for our good and for his glory? See, we have confident assurance that God is working all things for our good and his glory. He has said it time and time again, and it is imperative that we do not boast in men, and instead boast in Christ, who is our good and gracious Lord. He gives us all things for our growth and godliness. How kind is he? Why serve another master when we have in Christ the kindest Lord? Considering that it's true, here are three large applications. So first, take up all godly leaders. I would encourage you, please don't just read in the New Testament, but read Moses, read Isaiah, read Jeremiah, read Amos, but also read in the New Testament. Read Peter and Paul and James and John. Read all of Scripture. Take it in deep and continue to study it. But not only that, read about leaders in church history. I encourage you, read Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther. Read both John Calvin and John Wesley. Take up the Puritans, John Bunyan and John Flavel, Thomas Watts and John Owen. Take up more modern leaders such as John Piper and Timothy Keller, Mark Dever and Greg Gilbert, Ligon Duncan and Kevin DeYoung. I could go on and cite more, but my point is to say that with an open Bible in one hand, you can take the whole Christian world on the other. And I don't mean to put them on the same pedestal. Of course you know that God's Word is is our infallible guide through life and by which we measure everything. But with God's Word in one hand, take and read from the rich resources that we have in Christ. God has raised up many, many godly men and women Throughout church history, take up and read and learn from them. You will only grow. But realize that God uses all things in life and death for your growth and godliness. If you doubt this, spend some time reading the life of Job or reading the life of Joseph. In their darkest moments of their suffering, God is there 
meaning for good what is meant for evil. As you know, we have a couple of people that are connected to Lucy that are either sick with COVID-19 or we've had some that have gotten better from COVID-19. And my prayer for those people then and now is that they would not waste that sickness, but rather that in the midst of the sickness, they would cast their eyes and see God high and lifted up and they would grow in a deeper trust in him. That they would also realize one of the greatest blessings of church membership that we can come alongside one another and bear one another's burdens. And finally, let's realize that God is always working in this present moment and in the future. 2020 has been a wild year, but to God, it has not been a wild year. He knows. No one could have predicted what had happened this year, but God saw it all and is sovereign over it all. It reminded me of a couple verses from God Moves in a Mysterious Way, William Cowper. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, aka most of 2020, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God is over all things, things present and things in the future. And he takes them all to work for our good, his glory, and to work out his great and wonderful purposes. But before we wrap up, don't you see the beauty of the gospel in all of this? There is a theme of wages and reward that runs throughout scripture. Indeed, Jesus taught that a worker is worth his wages in Matthew 10.10, and that we should work unto the Lord as to receive receive award in Matthew 6, 3 and 4. And Paul takes up this uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 10 and argues that elders are um, worth their wages because of their ministry in 1 Timothy 5. So we have a theme in Scripture that promotes a healthy work ethic. Yet overshadowing that theme is what we see in the gospel. It is easy to see how the Corinthians or anyone listening here today might think of salvation as something we must work for and earn. But remember that what we've seen today in our text, our wisdom is deceptive and foolish. So it's, it's like this. It's like going to Walmart and trying to pay for your groceries with like an Indonesian rupiah or a Japanese yen. The problem is not just that it's insufficient. The problem is that it's wrong currency. You can't buy, I can't take these, these coins and go buy anything anywhere in Tennessee. That's the reality of where we're at. The beauty of the gospel is that salvation has been bought for us when we couldn't buy it ourselves. So dear friend, if you're marred with sin and burdens too heavy to bear, look to the cross. Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. All that we bring to the equation is our sin. Christ does the rest. His work within us, he works within us a repentance away from sin and a deep and abiding faith in him. And because he is our Lord, all things are ours. The beauty of the gospel is that we serve the Lord and live as Christians, not out of poverty, but as out of wealth. Not because we've earned anything, but because Christ has. It's a paradox, but a beautiful one. Dear friends, let's not be self-deceived. For we have been taught God's word, and the gospel brings about clarity. We have a sure path to follow in the days to come. And it's God's word and his promises. Let's become fools according to the world's standards because God's wisdom is greater than our own. 
Let's trust God. And if that makes us look foolish in the year 2020 in Millington, then that's okay. We will trust God. And finally, let's not boast in ourselves or others. For Christ is our Lord, and because he is Lord, all things are ours. If you found this message helpful, check us out at lucybaptist.com where you can find other resources or learn more about our church. We hope and pray that this message has helped you grow in your knowledge of God and in your relationship with Him.